is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For part two with Thomas Laub, we continue the conversation of Apple TV. We also discuss looking, learning, and celebrating fairy cakes and so much more. So I hope you enjoy this part two with Thomas Laub. Congratulations, Coda, best picture, yeah. Apple. Uh, last to the streaming games, first to win Best Picture. It's kind there of There you awesome. go. There you go. It was an exciting night. Thank you. I mean, I there's so much I love about the Apple team. And I think uh, it, it starts with it's such a small team. It feels like such a family. I mean, there really, there aren't too many of us. There are, you know, a couple dozen, whereas I think our counterparts, you'll find uh, uh, several hundred um, on similar teams. And it's just, it's a, it was a real moment of just confirmation that what we're doing is exciting. What we're doing is memorable. I think so much of the content that we have coming out is so exciting to see severance. I love, I think is fantastic. It's been so exciting to see the response. Pachinko. Oh my goodness. Has been so wonderful. Um, one of my favorite shows in recent memory coming out and there is so much more on the horizon with slow horses and roar. And, you know, I think we're going to have a couple dozen series come out this this year that people are going to be really excited about. So I, I, I like to think that the train only goes uh, faster and faster from here, sped on by the um, the vindication of this work and the confirmation that we're doing something exciting. So excited for the whole team. I understand the two the two platforms are different being live theater and streaming movies and TV. Are there any concepts from particularly maybe Apple that you think could cross over that might be missing in the live theater industry? Are there certain ways of doing things you're like, why don't we do this in theater? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I and talked about it a little bit before we started today, but I think the biggest difference in culture between theater and film or streaming is the culture of scarcity that exists in the theater. And it's it's predicated upon our outdated business model in theater, which we continue to scratch our heads about, but it's, you know, it becomes harder and harder to shift every year that goes by, um, every show that continues to cement it uh, into our collective memory. But with that said, in theater, it is all predicated upon what we can do. And I, I like to think of it in theater, it's what we can do. And in film, it's what we could do. Imagine in theater what we could do for this story, what we could do to uplift these storytellers, to bring the best, fullest version of this work to the screen, to tell the most fun, most enthralling version of this story. And in theater, it's it's what we can do. Here's what we can do, and let's work backwards from there to see how we what we can do with what we have. Um, because we have... Mm tons of financial pressure on the business model from all directions from you know the exorbitant rent charged by both broadway and off broadway theater owners that has gotten absolutely out of hand to you know uh union deals that are you know heavy at best exorbitant at most um and i think it it all it all results in a product that is careful that is so consistently careful in a way that I don't think anyone finds helpful. And I think that's how we end up with so many, you know, screen to stage conversions that end up failing is because they felt careful. So it felt worth that risky investment um, as opposed to so much of the luminary art that we're seeing on Broadway from Town to, oh my gosh, I saw on Sugarland recently, loved it. I mean, there's so much amazing work happening 
that feels quote unquote risky, but I think we just, in the theater right now, risky means not from a movie, which is embarrassing, right? Which is really embarrassing. Um, So it's, it's, it's lovely to see so much artistic success and financial success happening from the quote unquote riskier shows. So I'm excited to see how that progresses. But, you know, on streaming, it's been so lovely because we can say, what if we were able to do this? Mm. Great. Let's find the most efficient way of doing it. And then we can tell that story in a fuller way and have the artists see their see their story told, see, you know, the actors see their stories told, the designers seeing their stories told in the best, fullest way, as opposed to the way that we were able to scrounge up. Mm. What do you, okay, so what do you feel, well, I mean, you're, you're, you mentioned the, the items and the, the positions that would or could change this from like, what can we, what could we do? Um, what is that, what are those first, is that come from the, it starts with the financing, basically? It's where the money is yeah, coming think, from, you know, essentially? One of the most interesting systems to me nowadays is, is the idea of opening a theatrical studio. Uh, and changing our process thereof. I think one of the most is interesting business cases in our field is Disney Theatrical Group. And I I worked with them for a number of years on the revenue side. Um, but Disney is right now the one, the one singular one-stop shop in terms of theatrical production, from creative development to being a theater owner to marketing, advertising, press, education, licensing. You take an idea and you take it all the way to Broadway and then you take it all the way to middle schools and they have everything in house and they have an investment pipeline that is not predicated on, oh gosh, what could we do for this story? How risky is it? So how many, how many dollars can we allocate to it? But rather, here's our yearly budget for development. What's the best story we can tell this year? And that's not to say that there aren't a whole bevy of problems embedded in that in that uh, in that process and that company, just as there are everywhere else, but that is to say that that process can beget is able to beget a lot more creativity mm-hmm. than bopping from project to project and you know then giving it to CAA to sell to licensing houses and you know crossing our fingers and hoping hoping they do the right thing. Um, I think there's a lot more control and a lot more freedom in being able to touch every part of the process and being able to say, not only are we producing this on Broadway, but we're producing this for the next 20 years through licensing, through you know targeted revivals, through mother company licensed mini tours and regional theaters, through whatever it is. It just, it, it's a lot more exciting to me to be able to live with a piece, create and live with a piece, than create a piece and then wish it the best. And I think that's yeah. what's oftentimes so frustrating about our industry. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit um, yeah. to, to self-doubt. Does it ever come up? Is there a self-talk you have to work around it or through it? Who, me? I've, I've never. No, it, uh, of course, at every, every, every turn. And I think that something that I was taught from my parents and, and so many of my mentors in college was, you know, the times that we grow are the times that we're the most uncomfortable and uncomfortable in a safe way, I should say. Um, but with that said, I think I have consistently tried to be terrified um, after after school and in everything we do. I mean, I think the first time saying yes to anything new is the most terrifying thing we can do. I mean, the first show, the first Broadway show that we signed on to, 
I remember one of my favorite people in this world and, and, a, and certainly a wonderful mentor is uh, Mike Isaacson, an incredible producer. And he brought us on, brought me on to the first Broadway show that I produced. And I remember, I don't, I don't actually know if he knows this story. One of my, the funniest moments to date in, in my uh, journey has been, so we signed on and we were raising, you know, several hundred thousand dollars, something that we had never come close to doing, but something that we were certainly determined to do and excited to, uh, we, you know, we ended up doing it. It was, it was just fine. But with that said, one, one thing that Mike really drove home in our conversations was the confidentiality of it all, right? There's so much in our industry that's confidential, don't share until it's public, et cetera, et cetera. So I graduate from college after Mike brought us on to our first show. I, uh, you know, we graduated Saturday, showcase Sunday. I drove a 19 foot U-Haul from Michigan to New York City on Monday. And then I was gonna start in the Disney offices on Tuesday, cause I had been working remotely for, uh, for the last couple months. Um, and I, uh, I wake up Tuesday morning and I look at my phone and American Utopia, the project hadn't been made public just yet. Um, but we had signed on, we were so excited and above everything else, we were keeping it confidential. I hadn't told a soul. I maybe told my parents. Um, and with that said, he, uh, I, I wake up and I'm kind of excited for the first day in the office and I look down and I get a text from Mike and it says, do you think you can get all the money in by Friday? And I said to myself, I, I think I may have uh, thrown up that morning. That was certainly one where I, I didn't realize that I didn't need to keep this project a secret from investors, obviously. Um, but to that date, I kept it so close to the vest that I didn't even tell potential investors, which is hilarious looking back, but was terrifying in the moment. And so I freaked out. I was like, how do I get this money? in?" so of course, you know, I'm freaking out running around. What do I do? Calling some of my, you know, close friends in the industry to see, okay, what, let, let's get this started. Let's see what we can't figure out. And meanwhile, of course, the text I sent back to Mike was, of course. Um, and so there was just a moment of sheer, sheer terror and panic and self-doubt. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think so much of what I try to tell myself is enough, but, you know, Every moment we freak out is a moment that we aren't getting to work solving the problem. So we kind of, I, I, I had a moment where with myself of just kind of, no, let's just shut up and do this. And if we can't do this, then, then that's a problem because we certainly want to do this. Mm -hmm. We being me. Um, I, I feel like I talk to myself like a team, like we're like, we're all on a team, just kind of like, we got to do this, Thomas. Um, but, uh, but during those moments of terror, that's what it felt like. It's like, oh gosh, we got to do this. There's no other way. Um, and I was convinced at, you know, 90% of the time that we weren't going to be able to do it. But by that Sunday, it was all, it was all done. It was all in and it was all fine. And we had made some incredible connections with folks that we're still working with to this day. But I, the funnier part of it all was I was too scared to ask the question, how about next week? How about the week after? How about give me a little more time? Here's what really happened. No, I was too scared to ask. So I just, you know, started on the raise and kind of our, set our hair on fire for the next week or so. But in reality, you know, everybody else didn't get everything in until, you know, a month later, two months later, it was hysterical. If I had just asked the question, 
all of this stress could have been avoided. So I think it's a two pronged lesson. One, I'm so proud of the work we did, making sure that we were able to get everything in on time yeah. and uh, collaborate in that way. And B, ask the damn question. Um, and it was so <laughs> silly of us to just uh, to not even not not share what was happening. So I I loved that one, but certainly a ton of self doubt. And I think uh, what we're constantly telling ourselves is, you know, every moment of panic is a moment that the problem isn't being solved. So enough. Let's just go. We're going to be the same. We're not doctors. We do theater. We're going to be OK. And everyone's going to be OK. So let's uh, let's fix it and let's move on. Yeah, that's so that's so true. Is there a, a way in which you balance or view achievement versus fulfillment? I like to think they're pretty close. I mean, I think. I think one is outward, one is inward, right? And I think achievement opens external doors and I think fulfillment lets you sleep at night. Mm. Um, and I think those are both necessary on some level. And I think it's certainly a balance to that consistently changes on, on what you need to do. I think so much of my focus when I first came to the city was on achievement. And I think after burning myself out for a couple of years, my focus is now so much on fulfillment. And I think if you surround yourself with the, all the amazing people in our industry, I mean, it, it puts a smile on my face just to think about so many of the genuinely wonderful collaborators that we've had the privilege of just talking to and working with. But if you surround yourself with those people, they become very similar because you end up working with people who see and celebrate your fulfillment and you get to see and celebrate theirs. And that's that's the best. I think one of the best lessons that we were taught at, at Michigan was you can't move forward if you're looking sideways. And I think uh, at the end of the day, you can't progress on your journey if you're looking at someone else's and saying, you know, what did they do when they were x years old what did they do when this happened no you know look learn and celebrate learn and celebrate from your friends because they're incredible but at the end of the day achievement is uh achievement is your linkedin achievement is your resume for those who don't know you it's it's not important it's it can be helpful and open doors and you know certainly needs to open doors but at the end of the day, it's about fulfillment. It's about, you know, doing work you love with the people you love. And that's why we do it. Is there a common piece of incorrect advice you hear in the field of production? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think so often we're taught to grind, grind, grind yourself to the bone. And I think that is so harmful. I think there is such a difference between showing up for someone who shows up for you and showing up for someone who expects it of you, who expects you to, you know, stay late with no pay and grind yourself to the bone. And I mean, I've certainly had those working experiences where I was in the office till, you know, 10 or 11 every night working 60 to 80 hour weeks for not a living wage. Um, and looking back, it was, it's so interesting. I, I always thought to myself, you got to show up above all else. You got to show up. Mm. And I think I would amend that to You got to show up to people, you know, would show up for you, show up for your friend. I mean, there is a list of hundreds of people who, if they said, Thomas, I have a show in Atlanta or Savannah, Georgia, or wherever, wherever it may be, Denver, whatever, it doesn't matter. But, and I don't have someone to hang lights tomorrow. I'd be on the next flight. 
Who cares? Who cares if we're producing or hanging a light or running a light board or sewing a costume or selling a ticket or being an usher? I don't care. We're, mm. I care about showing up for our friends and, you know, our friends showing up for us. And I think that's what's beautiful about this industry is the collaboration and, you know, being able to be a tiny, tiny part of these stories that incredible writers and directors and designers and actors are bringing to life. Um, so if I'm an usher, why not? If I'm a producer, why not? But at the end of the day, I think what we want to do is work on projects we love with people we love. And I think uh, it becomes so toxic to grind yourself to the bone for something that you don't care about because there's always going to be another project. So make sure you're ready for that one as opposed to grinding yourself down to the bone on something that isn't serving you. Metaphorically speaking, if you could put a word or a phrase on a billboard for millions of people to see, does anything come to mind? Yes, my favorite my favorite saying is, and I, I try to live by this, is play in traffic. Um, and so much, don't literally play in traffic, just as a little, uh, you know, health disclaimer here, Surgeon's General, Surgeon General's note. Um, but with that said, play in traffic. I think so much of what we do is just running around, playing in traffic and seeing what cars hit each other, metaphorically. The idea of if you're walking down the sidewalk trying to get somewhere, less is going to happen. But see some atoms combust, see some cars hit each other. See what would happen if you asked the question or if you went to the dinner or if you sent an email. No one's ever gotten hurt from sending an email to someone else and saying, hey, can you help me with something? Yeah. So ask the question, play in traffic, see who you meet, see, you know, go to the random show, show up for your friends and see what happens. And I think that's that's how it all happens. I think you can trace, I, I, I certainly can, can trace every meaningful relationship in this industry back to a moment of, you know, totally seemingly innocuous of just like, Hey, shall we get a sandwich? Hey, sure. I'll, you know, that's fine. I'll hop in and help monitor your auditions. I'll jump in and be a reader for your callbacks. I'll jump in and help put together your opening night list. Sure. I'll hang a couple lights. And now those relationships are, you know, what they are today and so fulfilling, so meaningful. And I think, that idea of just playing in traffic, do stuff, see what happens. I love that. That's a, yeah, that's a, a concept more of us need to, to get on board with because that's, that's where the good stuff happens. Hilariously I enough. I, exactly. I think I met Doug Carter Bean. Oh, this is a funny one. This is true. Actually. I met Doug Carter Bean at a Cynthia Nixon for governor fundraiser in his house and we were terrified of going when we got invited. My pal who was in his play and I, we were like, we don't fit in. It's going to be us. And then, you know, an entire generation of theater makers that we've looked up to all our life, all our life. So many, David Henry Huang, so many people that we've looked up to for years, people whose plays I've been in as a kid. Right. Um, and so we, we decided to go and we went and we ended up closing the place down. And we, you know, sat and talked to these people that we admire until one, two in the morning and, you know, we decided, wow, these are people who we would love to work with. And then, you know, we had the we had the privilege and the pleasure and the honor of doing so. Um, so it was uh, it's always like that. Right. It's yeah. always just show up, see what happens. I love it. I love this conversation. Thank you for joining today. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap on up here? 
No, but thank you. I appreciate it, sir. And I'm so excited to uh, to come over for dinner soon. I know we've been plotting that for so long. So I just uh, I want to state for the record and on the record <laughs> that I cannot wait. People of the world, Thomas Laub. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. 